morning, Bel Air. Good morning. Hey, as you grab a seat, why don't you pull out your cell phone if you have one? Why don't you pull on out? And the last few weeks we've been doing this, I've been saying, if you've been here the last couple weeks, that there's people in your life that you know that I don't. Uh, there's people that you have access to that I don't. There's people that you know their needs that I don't. And there's people in your life that they trust you a lot more than they trust me because you have a relationship with them. And so if you would pull out your cell phones and think of someone that you want to encourage or bless to send a word of, I'm thinking about you, or hey, let's catch up. Maybe it's somebody you've been avoiding. Maybe it's somebody you've wronged. Maybe the text that you're going to send right now is, I'm sorry. I mean this. Pull out your phones. You're staring at me like, <laughs> no, literally, pull your phone. I'm going to do it too. And as we do this, the multiplication of impact is significant. Maybe some of you, it's your first time, and your text is going to be, there's some guy up front <laughs> who's telling me to text someone, and you're the first person in my contact list, so hey, you know. But use this as an opportunity to send love to someone. And as you're continuing to text, let me pray for us and for these texts as you continue on. Loving God, as we look at you, you model for us what it is to get out of our comfort zones. You stepped out of the comforts of heaven to love us. And so God, stir in us through the power of your spirit, a willingness to get outside of ourselves in bigger ways than this. Would, would we start small and start now with these text messages? Or if we don't have our phone or the ability to text that we would choose today to reach out to someone to express the love that you first give us. God, multiply this for your glory, for the sake of others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, why don't you pull out your Bibles, and some of you, that means your phone. Uh, version is a great app that I highly recommend, but if you don't have a Bible that you brought with you, those red books in front of you are our Pew Bibles. If you're joining us online, we use the New Revised Standard Version. It's on page 923 in your Pew Bibles. If you're in the front row, uh, there's a red book right in a cubby behind your leg. If you don't own a Bible, I highly recommend you having one, so therefore, take one with you. Uh, I would much rather you have these Bibles in your hands, in your possession, than them sitting here all week. We can restock them. And as I mentioned earlier, that version app, if you use an Android or an Apple device in the App Store, it's version. Y-O-U version. It's one of my favorite. It's for free. Uh, Bible translations from a number of uh, translations and languages, Bible reading plans, phenomenal resource. You can always carry it with you. A huge library that you can have for free. Uh, on your person at all times. Well, let me read for us Romans chapter 12 in verse 14. Hear this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This, my friends, concludes the reading of God's word. So what's with the chuckle? There's a chuckle there. Do we need this? Is this relevant right now? 2017, now how many of you, just show of hands, and I'm, I'm going to put my hand up, I'll start this confession fest. 
How many of you feel like you need to grow in your ability to bless people that wrong you or hurt you? Do you need to grow in that? Okay, those hands shot up quickly. Okay. Now let's get real for a moment. Now how many of you, I'm going to shoot my hand up quick too. How many of you sometimes just love it? Love it, love it, love it, love it. We just love it. You relish in it when the person that has wronged you gets a taste of their own medicine. How many of you just love that? (laughs) Yes, what's the deal? Okay, we want to grow, but we love not wanting to grow. (laughs) I want to grow, God, but no, but it feels so good. (laughs) Bless those. Don't curse them. Bless those that persecute you. Now, this section of Scripture that we've been walking through the last few weeks since the beginning of the new year is a little section that the Apostle Paul, one of the first leaders in the early church in the first century, is writing a letter to the church, the Christians in Rome, in a culture not that much different than our own today. And Paul is describing what a Christian should look like, how they should live, how they should love. If you've missed any of those sermons, I encourage you to go on our website, go on to iTunes. You can search Bel Air Church and get caught up. Start small, start now. Three simple messages that we've had each of these weeks, and we're going to conclude it today with this, this truth that God longs for us to experience, not just talk about or wishfully aspire to, but actually live into, to bless radically. This is so needed in our culture. And when it says to bless those that persecute you, the Greek word, which is the language of the New Testament, gives this image of a person or a group of people that systemically are oppressing or harming or marginalizing you. There is persecution everywhere. There's persecution in the cities and the suburbs. There's persecution on the schoolyard and in the highest elected official offices. We see persecution everywhere, where people are wronged, where they are marginalized, where they are hurt, where they are oppressed. And we also live in a culture where the immediate reaction is we curse, we cut. We meet evil with evil, we meet hate with hate, malice with malice, hardened heart with even harder heart, And we think that that's going to do anything, and it spirals worse and worse and worse. Open those Bibles back up. Take a look. Romans 12, verse 21. This section ends with the Apostle Paul saying this, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the word overcome, keep those Bibles open. The word overcome literally means and gives an image of a military force. The word overcome that he's using here is one that that when you think of an army overcoming an enemy, like literally it is violent, it is aggressive, it's an overwhelming show of force. And the Apostle Paul says, do not be overwhelmed, do not be beaten by, do not be crushed by, don't let evil win. Now, there's two very simplistic ways that every single one of us allows evil to win in our lives, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our culture, in our nation. The first is this, we're passive. 
around evil. Our voices are not spoken. We are silent when someone is wronged, when there is injustice, when there is hate, when there's marginalization. And we see it, and the moment we are silent, evil has won. You are overcome by evil when you are silent. Now, how many of you, uh, hands up, my hand's already up. How many of you, when you see evil in the workplace, in society, how many of you is your natural reaction to stay silent and to be passive, to not speak up? Is it, how many of you is that your natural reaction? Okay, me too. When people are speaking hate against me, I get silent. When I see injustice in a situation, I get paralyzed. And God is looking at me and he's looking at every single one of you that were willing to put your hand up and he's saying, I want to change you. I want to grow you. Do not settle for living a life of passiveness, of silence. This is not the life that I've called you to and you in doing that are allowing evil to overcome you. And I and you, we've got to grow. We'll talk about that in a moment, but we first have to begin with this truth that God is saying, I want you to see that in your passiveness, you're letting evil win. Now, another way that we can be overcome by evil, it's the complete opposite of passiveness. It is like an aggressive, violent response. Now, how many of you, when there is hate, when there is, look at that hand goes right up. I love that, Dave Clausen. <laughs> Such honesty. I love this. This is good. Now, how many of you, when you see injustice, and when you see oppression, when you see evil, your natural response is an aggressive, hateful, violent, vile, malicious response. How many of you can be honest? Kind of, kind of, kind of. I love that. I, I'm kind of spiteful. <laughs> I'm kind of malicious. God is saying through the Apostle Paul, through the power of the Spirit, that when you respond to hate with hate, when you respond to oppression with your own form of oppression, you are actually allowing evil to overcome you, to overwhelm you. You're letting evil win. Both of these things are so easy to justify. As someone who can be passive and who can be silent, I can look through all of Scripture and say, look at that verse, look at that verse, look at that verse, look at that verse. I should stay silent. And some, perhaps, can look through all of Scripture and say, look, we need to get involved, we need to speak out against this, we have to do this. And there's Scriptures throughout all of it that enable you and affirm that. And yet there's this great truth that it's neither in our pacifism or in our aggressive violence that we will ever overcome the evil that we hate. Walter Wink, a great, isn't that a great name by the way? Walter Wink, scholar who I, I very much value his writing, passed away a few years ago. Listen to this, he, he writes this. In a book called uh, The Third Way, The Way of Jesus, he says, Jesus reveals a way to fight evil with all our power, without being transformed into the very evil we fight. It is a way, the only way possible, 
of not becoming what we hate. Do not counter evil in kind. This insight is the distilled essence stated with sublime simplicity of the experience of those Jews who had in Jesus' very lifetime so courageously and effectively practiced nonviolent direct action against Rome. Jesus abhors both passivity and violence. He articulates out of the history of his own people's struggles a way by which evil can be opposed without being mirrored. The oppressor resisted without being emulated, and the enemy neutralized without being destroyed. All throughout Scripture, we see examples of this. And very clearly, right here, the Apostle Paul is saying that to be a Christian, to be a light in a dark world, to be salt of the earth that not only preserves but brings out the best of all those around you, you have to overcome evil with good. He's saying don't be passive, don't be violent, don't be paralyzed, don't be transformed and sucked up into the hate that which you hate, but overcome evil with good. And he's using the same military word. He's saying you've got to go on the offensive. You've got to be proactive. You've got to be aggressively good. You've got to be aggressively loving. You've got to be aggressively kind and patient and forgiving. And that's the only way. Evil won't overwhelm you, overcome you. Evil won't overcome your family, your friends, your workplace, your society, this world. You have to, and God is calling you to overcome evil with good. And we'll take a look at what that might look like in very tangible and practical steps. But we've got to first start small, we've got to start now. And I think there's three things that absolutely have to be necessary in your heart before you actually begin the practice of blessing people radically and blessing those that persecute you and overcoming evil with good. The first is this, you've got to have a humble heart. This isn't me making this up. Take a look, Romans 12. Open those Bibles back up. In verse 16, it says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, which means to be proud or to be superior or to be arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. This is key. This is absolutely the first step. You have to begin this if you want to follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone. If you want to actually be light in this broken and dark world, it has to begin from a place of humility. You see, the Christian looks out on the world and identifies the problem in the world very differently than non-Christians do. And I know we've got a mixed room here. We've got Christians and non-Christians and people that think they're Christians just because they walked into this space. People exploring Christianity. But it's very easy to look out in this world and point to other people and to point to other things and say, that is the root of the problem. Those people, that thing, they're the problem. What Scripture says, a true Christian, somebody who sees how God sees them, actually says, the real problem is me. And if you're unwilling to begin there, you will actually 
be overcome by evil, you will actually perpetuate evil, you'll actually multiply evil, and you will become the very thing that you hate. Flip Scripture back just for a moment to Romans chapter 3. And I hope that by the end of this, you are very uncomfortable. Because I am very uncomfortable when I see that this is what God says about me. And I hope that in this discomfort, it can actually wake you up to actually see the amazing truth that is there at the same time. Verse 9, Romans 3, what then? Are we any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one who is righteous. The word righteous means to be approved, to measure up, to be good enough. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who is understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. Their throats are open graves. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their paths, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world, you and me included, Pastor Belair Church included, the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Let's pause there before we continue on. I am as much a bigot as anybody else. I am as much unforgiving as anyone else. I am just as rude and unkind and deceitful as anyone else. And until you can actually say that about yourself, you will forever look at other people and say they're the problem. They're the source of evil. And you will actually approach people and things and organizations in a way from a place of superiority and pride and arrogance, you will be what's right and they will be what's wrong. And if you do that, you are actually multiplying the very evil that God wants to break. No one is righteous. No one measures up. If you had a tape recorder, remember those things? Hung around your neck? Or maybe you've got a smartphone and you hit the little red button and it's recording all the time. And it recorded all the things you said about other people when you judge them. And if somehow it could actually record your heart and how you judge other people. And actually, if you were to take that and listen to it at the same time that you had a videotape playing of your whole life, you would never measure up. I'm not even talking about the standard that God has, your own standard. You don't measure up to your own standards that you have for other people. And God is the highest standard of all. And until you realize that you have nothing 
that your hands have nothing, you'll never be able to receive this next truth as a gift. When your hands are full, you can't take anything else in them. With empty hands, you can take this, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, the approval of God has been disclosed. It's been shared and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Since all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, they're now justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by His blood, effective through faith. There's this great truth that if you can, on one hand, it's the hardest thing that you can ever do, it's the simplest thing you can ever do. It's the hardest thing to actually come to the end of yourself and realize that you don't measure up. We are arrogant people. We are self-righteous people. We justify our actions all the time to ourselves and other people. So in that sense, it's one of the hardest things we could ever do, but at the same time, it's so simple because it actually doesn't involve anything that we have to do because all we do is we hold on to what Christ has already done on the cross. The very Son of God who lived the perfect life went to the cross not as a victim, but He went victorious to take all of your sin, all of my sin, all of your brokenness, all of my brokenness onto Himself. And it's so serious that he goes to death. And the amazing thing is that he not only took that upon himself, but he defeated death. He rose from the grave, putting an end forever for the penalty of sin. So now there's this amazing truth that you are forgiven despite your bigotry and your injusticeness and your hate and the evil in your heart. God looks at you and says, you are so loved. God looks at you in Christ Jesus and says, you are so accepted. You are my beloved child, Scripture says. Ephesians 2.10, you are God's masterpiece. At the same time that you are humble in spirit, God lifts you up and says, you are mine, you are a treasure possession. And because God loves you so much, He sees the things in your life that are pulling you away from who you really are, who He really created you to be. And ready for this? He hates those things. God is so loving that He really hates a lot of things. God is so loving that He gets angry at certain things. And if you want to be a loving person, you've got to learn how to hate. But you've got to hate the right things. And if you want to be a loving person, you've got to get angry at the right things. Proverbs 6.16, once you open those up, in fact, it simply says the things that God hates. And in Proverbs 6.16, it says there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. The first one, haughty eyes. That's H-A-U-G-H-T-Y, by the way. <laughs> Not H-O-T-T-Y. Haughty. And it is a self-righteous, arrogant, 
prideful, always right, superior, condescending viewpoint. God hates that. And God loves you so much that he hates that in you and he hates that in me. And he wants to do something about it. Second, a lying tongue. God loves you, God loves me, but he hates lies. He hates them. God gets angry at lies. Third, hands that shed innocent blood. God loves you and he loves me, but he hates, hates, abhors, roars with anger at hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, God hates that. He abhors it. It gets God angry. Feet that hurry to run to evil, God loves you. And it hates the fact that you are so willing to run to that evil, so willing to run to seek revenge, so willing to run to tear somebody down. A lying witness who testifies falsely, God loves you, but when you are a false witness and are stuck in that, God hates that, he abhors it, he is angered by it. And finally, one who sows discord in a family. These are things that God is not compromising in. And when you can begin with this place of being humble in spirit and realizing that you have nothing apart from everything that Christ gives you. It's a great book title years ago, Jesus plus nothing is everything. You got nothing great, you've got everything if you receive Jesus. And if you begin in that place, humble in spirit, then you can move to the next step where you too hate evil. You are angered by evil. And if you begin from a humble place, then out of love and out of a sense of being forgiven in the first place, you can actually hate the things that God hates and be angry at the things that God is angry about. And unless you're able to do that out of a place of love, you'll be the very thing that you hate from the beginning. You'll be arrogant and prideful and superior, and you'll hate it because somehow it just doesn't measure up to your standards. So what does that look like practically? In a loving way. Think about somebody that you love tremendously, who's caught in addiction. Would it not be loving for you to hate that addiction that ravages their spirit, that has them completely imprisoned would it not be loving for you to be angry at that? You see, this is where I need to grow because I put my hand up earlier. It's easy for me to be passive, and I'm actually not being loving when my mouth is silent. I'm actually not be loving when I actually don't speak out and say, friend or enemy, which we'll get to in a moment. This thing that you're wrapped up in, it's destroying you. It's destroying your friendships. It's destroying our friendship. It takes a lot of courage, it takes a lot of boldness from a humble and loving place to hate that which is evil. Look there, Romans 12, I'm not making this up. Right in the very beginning, it says very clearly, let love be genuine, hate what is evil. Be relentless against pride, against lying, against false witnesses, hands that shed innocent blood, 
feet that run to evil, you have to see that and hate it as much as God hates it. God takes very seriously sin. God takes so seriously evil that he sent his son on the cross to die for you and for me. A God that was in relationship with God's self for all of eternity, that was fractured on the cross. That's how serious God takes it. And God is saying, wake up, church. Call a spade a spade. When you see injustice, you've got to hate it and you've got to speak out against it. But it's got to come from a humble and loving place. And that leads me to the third point. To forgive. As God forgives you. Take a look. In verse 19, Romans 12, it says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This principle, if you can allow it to work into your life, will change everything. God is saying this. He's saying two things at the same time. On one hand, God is saying, I'm going to make things right, I'm going to bring justice, I'm going to bring vengeance. The oppression that you see around the world that you are looking for righteousness and justice, God says, I'm going to do something about it. And God will do with it one of two ways, either through what Christ already did on the cross or the judgment that's going to come when Jesus comes a second time. And when God says, is the ultimate judge, is the ultimate righteous one, vengeance is mine, what that does is it lets you off the hook from being judge and jury and seeking revenge on your own terms. So if a boss wrongs you and is constantly belittling you and is cutting you down for whatever reason, and if you, and it's so natural, if you seek vengeance on your own, what do you do? Maybe you spread a little lie about them. Maybe it's more subtle than that. Maybe you're like me. You wait for them to make a mistake. And you don't say anything. But on the inside, you're like, Oh, yeah, that was awesome. See, I'm so subtle about it. I'm kind of refined in how I seek revenge. I don't, I'm not going to spread gossip. I don't do that. I'm not going to set somebody up for failure. But what do I do? I sit and wait. And the moment they do that thing that causes them to be ridiculed inside, I'm like, yes. And God looks at you and says, what are you doing? Why are you playing judge and jury? Drew, is that how you're trying to cause them to pay the debt that they now owe you? By ridiculing them in your heart. How do you do it when somebody wrongs you or oppresses you? A family member, a neighbor, a boss, a coworker, a president. How do you respond? Are you passive? Do you meet hate with hate and oppression with oppression? 
If you do, you're allowing evil to overcome you. And there's this way of living that is so radical that Jesus, when you listen to how Jesus teaches and how he lives, is so radically different than the rest of the world. Remember, he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a tit for tat. You measure up with what they brought to you. Jesus says, no. When they strike you on the cheek, you turn and you give them the other. Now, back in the day, passive Drew was like, there it is. There's the verse. Pacifism right there. You get hit, you give them another target. Don't speak up. Don't do anything. It's not at all what Jesus is saying. You see, in the first century, forgive me now if you're right-handed or left-handed, but in the first century, you used your right hand for things in public and you used your left hand for things in private. You shook hands with your right hand, you did business with your right hand, you did everything with your right hand in public, you interacted with other people with just your right hand because in an unsanitary culture, you used your left hand for other things. And so therefore, in public, you would never use your left hand to interact with somebody else. And so when Jesus is talking about turning the other cheek, he's actually in a very subversive way showing us in a very practical and an amazing way how to disarm the hate and the evil that comes against you. Walter Wink, you heard me share his name earlier. One of the most succinct ways of unpacking that cultural moment, he says this. When Jesus says, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other one to them as well. Why the right cheek, Walter Wink asks. A blow by the right fist in that right-handed world would land on the left cheek of the opponent. Think about that. A little right hook, it's going to hit, right? It's going to hit their left cheek. An open-handed slap would also strike the left cheek. To hit the right cheek with a fist would require using the left hand which you would never do in that culture. You would never, ever do in that culture. The only way one could naturally strike the right cheek with the right hand would be with the back of the hand. We are dealing here with an insult, not a fist fight. Listen to this, you've got to hear this. Jesus is not talking about a barroom brawl. What he's saying, that euphemism in the first century culture, that when someone insults you, the intention is clearly not to injure but to humiliate when they do that. To put someone in his or her place, a backhand slap was the usual way of admonishing inferiors. Masters backhanded slaves, husbands, wives, parents, children, men, women, Romans, Jews. We have here a set of unequal relations in each of which retaliation would be responded to with retribution. The only normal response in the first century would be cowering submission. You just take it, you just take it, you just take it. And there are people here today that are just taking it. You are being oppressed, you are being wronged, you are being persecuted. And whether you're an individual or you're part of a group of people, you know what it's like to be looked down upon, to be humiliated, to be insulted. 
And Jesus is speaking to everyone. And he says this. Why then does he counsel those already humiliated people to turn the other cheek? Why? Because this action robs the oppressor of the power to humiliate. The person who turns the other cheek is saying, in effect, try again. Your first blow failed to achieve its intended effect. I deny you the power to humiliate me. I am a human being just like you. Your status does not alter that fact. You cannot demean me. And it's not cowering in passivity. It's not responding with aggression. It's leaning in as a human being and saying, you can't embarrass me. My worth, my identity, you cannot touch. The love that God has for me in Jesus Christ, you can't even scratch an iota of an ounce off of it. So I'm going to stand here. I'm going to choose to be in relationship with you. And I'm going to lean in. And you've got a choice. And rather than respond with violence, I'm going to turn back on you the fact that you are actually, you're humiliating yourself. And here's where there's a radical, radical departure from culture right now. In a world where we so absolutely want to cut or curse or undercut or get revenge against those that persecute us, God says through Paul, I want you to bless them. The word bless in the Greek language is eulogia. It's where we get the word eulogy from. Every memorial service, there's a eulogy where a family member or a friend gets up in front and speaks well of someone. The Apostle Paul is saying, I want you to speak well of those that are wronging you. And at the same time, he's saying, I want you to hate and be angry against and to speak out against and engage that which is evil. How do you do that? It seems like these things are mutually exclusive. Let me give one example. Let's say you're in a workplace and a boss is completely undercutting you. You, like me, are waiting for them to make a mistake so you can just, just celebrate their loss. How do you love them? How do you bless them? How do you speak well of them? And yet relentlessly go against and speak against and engage that which is evil that they've been doing. It could look like this. To walk up to them and say, I'm for you. I want you to thrive. And actually, I want this organization that I'm a part of, that you're my boss, I, I want us to do so well. And I'm going to show up on time and I'm going to do my job and I'm going to do everything in my power to make you look good because I want what's best for you. I care for you. You know what? I'm going to pray for you. How can I be praying for you if you even go that far? However, every time when we're in a staff meeting and you undercut me, I don't know if you know this, but that doesn't phase me. Because I'm secure in who I am. And I'm going to keep showing up every day on time. And I'm going to keep on doing everything I can to make this organization amazing. But I want you to know that when you do that, that is wrong. And I see this thing in your life that you're doing. I don't know if you want this in your life, but I'm telling you, you're not going to thrive when you talk to other people that way. 
You know what that's going to do to that person? And that's just one example of many. They're going to be like, what? I mean, wouldn't you, if an employee of yours came to you and in a loving way spoke truth and says, I love you, but this was wrong. I love you, but I, I can't accept this. You know, I want what's best, but this isn't right. And I might have to report you to our HR director. You know, to be able to do both those things at the same time is going to cause those people to say, what? Because we're used to people just kind of cowering, beginning to show up late, eventually quitting, or we're used to people being aggressive and violent and coming back and hitting. Take a look at this one image with that in mind, verse 20. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. How many of you have ever heard that passage before? What on earth is that? I used to be a Boy Scout. Burning coals in a fire are hot. And for years, I used to think, gosh, is this, this isn't the Bible? Like who, why would we ever want to heap burning coals on someone's head? I mean, this just seems violent and oppressive. I remember a professor at Florida Seminary where I got my Master's of Divinity talked about this, this phrase. And he said that, you know, you think about burning coals literally being dumped on someone's head. It's going to hurt, right? And I'll never forget what this professor said. He says, but those burning coals can't destroy someone. These burning coals, physically, in, in reality, they won't, they won't crush someone. They won't destroy. They won't kill someone. And I'm in class, I'm like, where is he going with this? Some of you are like, where is this guy going with this? The professor said this, I guarantee you, if you get burning coals heaped on your head, you would notice. I mean, show of hands, would you notice if somebody put burning coals on your head? Yes, you would. I, I would too, right? He says that when you actually love your enemy, when you actually are kind yet speak the truth and hate that which is evil to those that have wronged you, it's going to cause that person to notice. It's going to be like an alarm has been set off. And that's the reality of this great truth of the world that we live in because every single one of us, we think that we are right, we think that we are good, and the people that you hate because they're hating you, think they're right. That's what's crazy. The people that are oppressing you, they think they're justified. And it's like we're zombies asleep and we collectively need to be woken up. And when you are actually able to live into this truth, somehow, with a humble heart, hating that which is evil, and yet coming from a place of forgiving other people in a way that actually blesses and loves and is kind and is good to those that are wronging you, it's going to cause people around you to wake up, to take notice, to all of a sudden, and if they don't in that moment, perhaps at the end of the day, for the first time to self-reflect and think, wow, do I do that? Because when you respond in kind, it solidifies that person in their hate and in their evil even more. When you are passive, it says to everyone around you, including you, that that evil is okay and it can be tolerated, it can be allowed. 
But when you respond as Jesus responds, and here's the amazing thing, this is not about imitating Jesus, it's about the power of the Holy Spirit in you, transforming you from the inside out to live this kind of life, then you too can bless those that persecute you. Stephen, one of the first leaders of the church, he's being stoned to death. And he's saying, forgive them. He's saying to God, forgive them. How could he do that? He had a heart and mind focused on Jesus Christ who on the cross of all things, Jesus looks out upon those and he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The beginning of Romans 12 says this, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In view of God's forgiveness of you, in view of God's love for you, in view of God's aggressive and relentless and overwhelming goodness to you, would that flow to you and through you to those around you? Let's pray. God, what seems to be an impossible, impossible, impossible thing, it sometimes feels like an avalanche all around us. discord and injustice, violence and hate, marginalization and oppression. God, would you humble us enough so that we would slow down and we would be open to seeing that you are for us, not against us, that you pursue us out of love, that you establish in us an identity that can't be shaken that you give us an inheritance that can't be touched. May God, that give us the strength and the courage to walk in this world, knowing that you are the one who truly speaks our worth into us. May it change how we live in love. May it cause us to overwhelm and overcome evil with good. And may it cause the world to be startled, to wake up, knowing that, God, you have come, that you so love the world, as it says in John 3, 16, that you gave your only son so that we would not perish, but we would have eternal life. Jesus, we thank you for your love, how you've come to us for us, and how you want to extend that love through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We love because God first loved us. We give because God first gave to us. We have an opportunity in many different ways to give ourselves, our time, our energy, and service. One of the ways that we give is through our tithes and our offerings. And in a moment, the ushers are going to come forward to receive our gifts. Many of you give online. If it's your first time here, I want to say welcome. Instead of an offering, there's a card in the pews that says, get connected. If you want to simply let us know that you were here, if you have any questions or prayer requests, we'd be honored to pray with you answer any questions you might have. You can place that card in the offering basket today, but let me pray for it as we continue on. God, would you multiply what we give for your glory and for the sake of others. In Jesus' name, amen.